Um, thank you for inviting me here today. It's, I'm grateful to be here with you all. Um, as she mentioned, my name is Emily Baird Chrisahan. I'm the Welcoming Tennessee Coordinator with the Tennessee Immigrant and Refugee Rights Coalition, or TURC, as we're more commonly called, because who wants to say Tennessee Immigrant and Refugee Rights Coalition all the time? Um, prior to working with TURC, um, I organized faith communities mainly in Knoxville around issues of Islamophobia. And I worked closely with a Unitarian Universalist church there, Tennessee Valley UU. Um, but I had never closely read the UU principles prior to preparing to speak with you all today. Um, I was particularly drawn to the second principle, justice, equity, and compassion in human relationships. What a beautiful value to strive for. Compassion is a value that centers my work in my life, a word that I continue to come back to and a word that I would like to explore more with you all today. I do not always share this when I present with groups, but since this is a faith community, I feel that there's probably many of you that can identify with my journey. It is not separate from my faith that I work in immigration rights, but a manifestation, manifestation of what I believe about humanity and a loving, welcoming God. I grew up in a church where I sat right down there and listened to a story, um, where I was taught to love God with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself, and I took it seriously. So it's that simple, and it's that difficult. But before we dive more into compassion, let me tell you just a little bit about Turk if you're not familiar. We're a statewide immigrant and refugee-led collaboration whose mission is to empower immigrants and refugees throughout Tennessee to develop a unified voice, defend their rights, and create an atmosphere in which they are recognized as positive contributors to our state. Turk was founded in 2003 from a campaign to provide access to driver's license for undocumented individuals. At the time, the campaign was so successful that there was a recognition that a longer-term organization needed to be present. And we're still a coalition today, and we're very proud of the diverse membership that informs all of the work that we do. Our co-executive director often says that we seek both to help immigrants with the barriers they experience, but we also want to work to eliminate those barriers. So we provide services, legal assistance, community education, as well as mobilizing community members and allies working towards positive policy change. As the Welcoming Tennessee Coordinator, my role focuses on creating more positive spaces for conversations on immigration and helping shift the overall narrative in a more positive direction. So I work with allies, or what we would refer to as receiving communities, across a spectrum of support. This means allies that are already supportive, helping them engage in our work better, or people that are not supportive of immigration, helping move them along the spectrum of support towards more welcoming opinions. I do a lot of work with faith communities as we understand faith to be a very important avenue from which people communicate about immigration. You might not be aware, but Tennessee has one of the fastest growing immigrant populations in the country. Even though immigrants still only make up about 5% of the overall state's population, the growth rate makes it seem like a lot more to residents. So the tensions and anxieties that arise from this rapidly shifting demographic have unfortunately created fertile ground for potential acts of hate, as the Murfreesboro community is all too familiar with. 
So my work seeks to help people process this immigration in their community in an order to stop the potential anti-immigrant backlash and create more welcoming communities. So as I said, even though we're only 5%, if you've lived in a neighborhood your whole life that looks a certain way, but all of a sudden it looks differently, um, it feels like more to people, right? It feels like um, the demographic is shifting more rapidly. Um, So we try to be on the front end of that. We know that hateful and exclusionary rhetoric towards immigrant communities is nothing new. However, what communities receive the focus of that rhetoric shifts time after time. Often when I give a welcoming presentation or what is probably better known as like an Immigration 101 presentation, I show a quote claiming that immigration is increasing from, quote, races most alien to the American people and from the lowest and most illiterate classes among those races, end quote. Though this sounds like something a current politician might say, it was spoken by Representative Henry Cabot Lodge in 1891, and it was directed at Italians and Eastern Europeans. So again, we know this hateful rhetoric is nothing new. It's been with us for a long time, but the direction of that rhetoric falls on different communities. A lot of what my welcoming presentations focus on is the complicated nature of the currently broken immigration system. For instance, if you would like to move to Mexico, or I'm sorry, from Mexico to the U.S., and your brother is a U.S. citizen, it could take you up to 12 years to do so. And if you're related to someone who is a U.S. citizen, that is the fastest route. Um, If you are a citizen who would like to sponsor your adult child to move with you to the U.S. and you happen to be from the Philippines, it could take you 14 years for your child to join you. One of the statistics that is most astounding to me is this category of unskilled laborers visa category. The AFL-CIO and the U.S. Chamber of Congress got together and they said that we need 200,000 immigrant workers each year for our economy to function. Now, these organizations do not usually agree. One is more liberal, one is more conservative, but this is the number that they were able to settle on. So we know that it is really a, probably a more conservative number. So 200,000. But we only allocate 5,000 visas. 200,000 is what we need. So we are 195,000 short, which is staggering. This brief context on our immigration system begins to explain why someone might be undocumented. And currently, there is no path for someone who is undocumented to take to become documented. As we can see with DACA, it's been in the news a lot lately, if people are given this pathway or quote-unquote line, Um, people usually take it because being undocumented, living in constant fear of being separated from your family is not something people desire. So I joined Turk last April of last year, sorry, um, two days before our country's largest workplace raid in a decade happened in East Tennessee. Some of you might have heard about the Bean Station raid where, 90, where I stormed into a meatpacking plant, arrested 97 workers, 54 of whom were immediately transported to Louisiana without the opportunity to see their family or for some receive the medical, um, their medications that they needed. 600 children didn't show up for school the next day, showing the fear that swept through the community. 600 children. 
Children were missing parents, spouses were missing spouses, neighbors were missing neighbors. On my seventh day with Turk, I stood before a packed gymnasium of 800 people who had come to grieve, process, and pray for what had happened in their community. 800 people from a small, rural, conservative town. Suddenly, immigration policy was not a distant concept for them. It became humanized in the absence of their friend, neighbor, and fellow congregant. This town, its teachers and its pastors and its community leaders responded with compassion. Compassion, though not gone in the kind gestures of these neighbors, seems hard to come by these days. It seems completely lacking on a grand scale and unfortunately lacking from our elected leaders. We're all familiar with what the pedestal of the Statue of Liberty reads. Most of us learn about it in school. Give us your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. But we now must ask ourselves if we are still a beacon of hope for people. The U.S. has been leading the way in refugee resettlement since World War II. Since 1975, we have welcomed over 3 million refugees. On average, we welcome about 95,000 a year. At the height between the Reagan and the Bush eras, we welcomed 200,000. Yet at a time when the world is facing the largest number of displaced people ever, At 68.5 million, this has surpassed what it was in World War II. Our administration has reduced the refugee ceiling to a historic low of 30,000. And we are not even on track to settle that. We've also seen countless attacks on our asylum system from the attempt to narrow it by removing domestic violence and gang violence as asylum claims, from using tear gas and rubber bullets on asylum seekers at our border, from creating backlogs in cases to rhetoric suggesting asylees are not doing things the right way. Seeking asylum is the right and legal way. We have a system for asylum and migrant caravans are not new. Fear-based messaging and portraying poor people fleeing danger as invaders and is wrong and it's irresponsible. This week has been particular diffi- particularly difficult if you've been following the news. Um, the images have been really difficult to take. As we've seen more lives lost in the pursuit of refuge. 24 people have now died in ICE custody over the past two years. Three of those have just been since April. And the issues don't just lie at the federal government. This past legislative session, we saw extreme legislation introduced against the immigrant community in Tennessee, from keeping birth certificates from U.S.-born children with undocumented parents, to trying to deny housing to undocumented immigrants, to a resolution supporting the end of birthright citizenship. Fortunately, we were able to stop all of these bills from becoming law, but this took resources away from us being able to fight for positive legislation for our communities. Tennessee legislature is also suing the federal government to try to stop refugee resettlement. HB 2315 went into effect in January, which makes it easier for local officials to work with ICE. ICE activity and arrest have increased across the country and across the state, and schools and hospitals are not exempt in our state. Who are we becoming? When parents are afraid to pick up their children from school, when individuals are scared to seek emergency medical care, when families are terrified to leave their house, 
who are we becoming? And what can we do? It's a hard question, and I get asked it a lot. What can we do? Most certainly, there are ways to walk alongside those who need it, to donate supplies, to volunteer, to express outrage, to contact your member of Congress. All of these things are extremely important. And I'm going to talk about some more specific ways you can plug into our work if you're interested during the talk back next hour. But what we really need most from receiving communities is education. We need most the willingness to engage in difficult conversations, not for the purposes of winning, not to enrage the other, but to truly desire transformational and compassionate moments to see and understand the other person. The work of faith communities is service and is loving neighbor, most certainly, but it is also education. It's also speaking truth when truth is really difficult. I'd like to share with you about a project we ran last year utilizing deep canvassing. If you're not familiar with deep canvassing, it's similar to traditional canvassing, except that rather than trying to garner support for a particular policy or a candidate, it seeks to understand a voter's overall view on an issue, for us, immigration. It's like having a relational one-on-one at someone's door. The value that we focused on in these conversations was compassion, asking the voter to share of a time when someone showed them compassion. Our experience was energizing. People previously considered unmovable actually moved towards supportive views. And what most voters, what most, why most voters moved, it was not a magic phrase or a talking point from our canvasser, but the expression of their own story paired with the radical act of being heard. I say radical because to truly be heard, to be seen, to be understood, to be given space to process one's views is radical. Can you think of the last time that you were truly heard. It doesn't happen often. Our canvassers do this through active listening, through asking good questions, repeating without confirming concerns, and sharing their own compassion story in a real way. Our canvassers display compassion in order to then ask the voter display compassion for the migrant communities. As one of our canvassers pointed out, I need to mirror the vulnerability I want to receive. Vulnerability. Another word missing from our current rhetoric. Something that society tells us is weak. Certainly something our current leadership hates to display. Yet something so necessary for human connection. Compassion and vulnerability. Compassion is not pity. It's not to see yourself above or better than someone. It is instead to understand someone's suffering as if it were your own. It is to understand our interconnectedness, that the suffering of one is the suffering of all, and to understand the strength that lies beyond that suffering. I'd like to leave you with something I said when speaking to a legislator who was commenting that these issues are tricky and asking what we could do. And he's right. Immigration law is tricky. It's incredibly complicated. And sometimes it's hard to know what to do. But my response to him was this. I think we often start with answers when we should instead start with questions. 
Who do we want to be? How do we want to treat people? What values do we want to live into? We might not always know where we are going, but let's start with compassion and build from there. Thank you.